The Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones, Chapter 7. Exit the Third Victim. I was sitting in my stately but comfortable wing chair when I was compelled to turn on the television. Exactly 6 p.m. and the news was bad. Richard Easley of, quote, no fixed address, unquote, as the euphemism has it for poverty and homelessness, was run over by a stolen car. The details are not pretty. As far as the police can glean or reveal, Easley was struck at the corner of Queen and Montreal, dragged a couple of blocks east, and then simply abandoned with the car. The killer wanted to make it clear that this is one of his trophies, his language, as quoted in the news item, not mine. And so he left a simple but crude note in the man's pocket. This is the third person I've killed. The newsreader, a normally stolid man whom I've watched many nights before without incident, chokes at the word third, clears his throat, looks down at his script, and then looks up with determination. He quotes the rest of the note in a noticeably quieter voice, as if he has been subdued by the facts or the threat. I find it all a little hard to believe. I will have to do more research to determine when a mere spree of murders becomes bona fide serial killings. But, as I have already noted, the means and variety of means that this person is using to carry out his murders are very unusual. I am drawn now, right away, to the few good monographs I hear, have here in the room on the topic, but instead I put on my coat and head outside. It's cold, and the force of the wind on my face is salutary, making me pay attention to something other than murder. I have my hands in my pockets, my head down, the sidewalk just repetitive slabs of bleak concrete, and by this time I am trudging north along Bagot. The wind dies down, the temperature moderates, and I stop, realizing that I am within minutes of the scene of the crime. Do I want to see this? I wonder. A car goes by, and I have a mental image of poor Easley being dragged. I wonder whether he was killed on impact, one can hope, or whether it was the sandwiched ride between pavement and chassis which did him in. I think of the possibility of him being struck by the car but not really being hurt, instead just thrust under the bumper and alive and conscious for however many horrific seconds it would take to be slammed to death, trapped down there, dirty, noisy. I picture him not even holding on but just wedged up there amid the machinery somehow so that he couldn't escape even if he wanted to even if he preferred being plonked down on the hard ground and possibly run over to be dragged to death. I can't really bear to be here. I turn around and nearly run back to my room. My landlady greets me in the foyer. A cold night to be out, she says, stating the obvious. Yes, I reply. Did you hear about that poor man who was run down by that car? Yes, I saw the news. It's a terrible world, and I don't know what it's coming to when those things happen. In a small town, too, no less. It's a terrible world, she repeats, and then walks into her living room, her head down for a moment, and then looking up again, shaking. I walk upstairs to my room. I feel quite comfortable as I sink back down into the same chair, 
where I got the bad news. I dare not turn on the television again out of fear that something worse may have happened, if that is even possible. I ease back into the dark silence and think about the police chief, only a month or two on the job and now faced with this horror. He took over the position quickly after the old chief, more than 30 years on the force, was fired and left disgraced after he had been caught in a scandal. Things have been so hectic lately, murderers like that, that I forgot get all the details, but I know that he had been stealing confiscated drugs and giving them back to a dealer who sold them and split the proceeds. Through some legal machination or another, he was able to avoid jail time, but the image of him that adorned the papers and the TV, a broken man, was sad and haunting. He was burly and red-faced. From both embarrassment and drinking, the wags wagged. On the first day of the investigation into his actions, but by the end of it, he was an unhealthily skinnier, soft-spoken when he used to be categorical, deferring to reporters' invasive probing when he had apparently made a career out of talking over them, cutting them off, answering the questions he wanted to, and not the one they'd asked. The old chief retreated to obscurity after that. He sold his house and moved to his cottage by the lake, and the truth is that nearly everyone forgot about him. Rumors flew. Some people say that within weeks of his move he was dead by some circumstance. Suicide, drug deal gone bad, police retaliation. And the ridiculousness of these speculations was not confirmed by the absence of a body. Others say that he continued a life of crime in his forced retirement, not only dealing drugs, but knocking over convenience stores for extra cash as well. This rumor, of course, does not merit comment. I carried out some interviews of a more reliable segment of the citizenry of Nostingen and Byron's, supplemented by personal surveillance at his cottage, and what I gleaned was that this sad bear of a man succeeded in his final goal, a simple fading away into the background. He doesn't quite feel that his entire career was invalidated by what happened in the last few months, but some days he wallows in sorrow, or anger, or indifference when he can muster it. The easily murder sets a new low in sheer cruelty and frankly makes me worried about the state of mind of a man whose repertoire could include such a method. I hasten to add, no murder is acceptable, of course, but some of them are perpetrated with a kind of evil panache that takes one aback. Using a car like that, for example, is an affront to all human dignity and a crass and disdainful poke at the police. See, I can hear the murderer saying. See, I can drive this noisy vehicle around the streets with a man jammed under the chassis and you can do nothing about it. I shudder. I wonder how a murder such as this even takes place. Does he pick out a person and just plow him over? Or more likely, perhaps, does he drive slowly around darker and less populated neighborhoods, looking for a weak one which has strayed from the herd, and then strike? I really am not quite sure which one I find the more distressing. The radio provides some solace this evening, no news, of course, but just the uninterrupted strains of Mozart et al. for my savage breast. Later that night, somewhat self-wounded by my own ruminations, I head out to the coffee shop with nothing in hand, 
no book, no newspaper, no computer, nothing to listen to or play with. All the way to the place I keep picturing myself in a dimly lit, undisturbable corner, a locus from which I can see when I might want to, want to, but hardly be noticeable myself. I order a dark roast, the desire strong inside me for something harsher than the day, and grab a packet of sugar and a wooden stirrer, splintered, I notice, as I head like a guided missile to the desired corner. I settle into the seat, shrug my coat onto the back of it, and wait for the usually kind server to make an exception and actually bring my coffee to me. Dear boy, he does. I thank him with a pinched smile and then slouch somewhat while I watch the steam rise off the top. It is something nice and small, and I find I can focus on it for a couple of minutes before I have to shake myself to attentiveness again. I recognize some of the regulars in the room, the sociology grad student with her head bent to her computer, the couple without rings whom I've also seen here separately with their spouses, rings all round. I feel a near literal stab when the door whooshes open and Tony walks in. Like a pimply teenager whose first date was awkward but fascinating, I am tempted to call to her, call out to her as much as I am to slump down right to the floor while I await her departure. She turns around after she places her order and my eyes, formerly drilling into the back of her head, are now communicating something or other to her that seems like an invitation. She is at my table in seconds. Listen, I know this is abrupt and you probably just want to be alone, but would you mind if I joined you, even for just, even for just five or ten minutes? Tell me straight out if not. Of course, it's one of those questions that has only one appropriate answer, like the time I was, quote, asked to leave Toronto U. Sure, that would be lovely, I say, and in spite of my dark, morose self, I genuinely do mean it. As she walks back to the counter to retrieve her drink, I wonder if she noticed the soft lilt in my voice, nearly pleading for her company, that I was simply not able to suppress. I feel the same jumble of emotions that dogged me all the way through my adolescence when the desire for connection generally lost out to the fear of rejection. As she strides back toward me, the flaps of her coat fly off behind her and I can see that she has crafted a style that is soigné at the same time as it is casual, what looks like black silk on top and elegant denim below and a swath of skin in between. Thanks, she says as she sits, throwing her coat over the back of one of the extra chairs. I know it's kind of rude of me to do this, and you're a sweetheart for not saying anything, even if you are pissed. Not at all. The rustling noises which accompany settling in eventually dissipate, and we are both left like symmetrical bookends facing each other and holding our cups. We have to stop meeting like this, she says finally, and laughs at her own joke. And you know, it's a bit of a cliché, but it's good to laugh. I mean, it's good to have some relief from these murders. I've spent all day going back and forth between being horrified or surprised or even just frightened. I can see something of a little girl in her, in her eyes, a terror, and her hands as well as her lips are trembling ever so slightly. The trained eye notices these things as she sets her cup down. So, listen, she continues... What's your story? 
you told me a bit about yourself at the library there and then at the restaurant, but what do you do when you're not writing a book about murder? I hesitate, not because I don't know where to start, but because there is nowhere to start. It's fairly dull, actually, if I have to be honest. I mean, my life, well, not dull, perhaps, but I suppose what I'm trying to say in my own bumbling way is that I do not have too many activities outside of this research, but that I do consider the research to be important, and that does provide me with a kind of solace in my lonely nights. I agree with you, I mean, about the fact that the book will do some good. We both sip and I take the mental opportunity to try to fathom exactly what she is, tr- she is trying to glean. I do realize the possibility that she may be completely integrative, that she may be genuinely interested in a scholar's work or in a live version of how a crime gets investigated and solved. But a doubt nags in my gut, one of those undefinable feelings that I have trouble articulating or explaining, but of which I am but of which I am as certain as I am of anything. I've said too much, she says. I tend to pry. It's quite all right. There are always turning points in conversations, just as there are in relationships. Something is said or done, or in a memorable moment I had with one of the toadyish assistant professors at TU, thrown, and then subsequent interactions are irrevocably altered. During the rare, quiet evening at home when I am too fatigued for research or reading, I've turned on the radio and heard the most execrably mawkish songs bemoaning the same phenomenon, baby done done something or other, and so on. Alas, I suspect this fate has befallen Tony and me, and no matter of cajoling or explanation can revive us. I would like to tell her that I don't mind her questions at all, that I don't consider them intrusive, that in fact I welcome the platonic attention of any human whom I find intelligent and witty. Well, I should get going anyway, she says predictably. Oh, so soon? As blackly doomed as it is, I do still entertain a glimmer of hope. Yes, though maybe we can, like, hook up some other time. I'd like that very much. She gathers up her coat, and with something partway between a smile and a grimace of regret, she has gone past the counter and out the door. I watch her out on the street as she flips her collar up around her ears and looks up the one-way street before she crosses on the red, no looking back. It does occur to me that I have misinterpreted this entire exchange that Occam's razor applies, and that perhaps she was simply happy to see me for a short time did not want to overstay her intrusion and genuinely would like to meet again. I try to convince myself of that as I settle back into my seat and try to forget everything bad.